The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our service of Berean Baptist Church. Philippians chapter 4, I want to begin reading with verse number 6, and we'll read down to verse number 12. Here, the Apostle Paul writes, Be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things." Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content." I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer needs. These past few weeks, I've been locked up in the house. And I believe the worst part of it, I mean, beyond the physical pain that went through having an operation is the mental and the spiritual turmoil of not being where I wanted to be. Mentally, I, I was absent. And, and that's because of medications that I was taking, the painkillers and all of that. And it was very difficult for me to think like I wanted to think. Someone asked me before uh, the operation what, what I would do while I was uh, gone all these weeks and asked me what books that I would read while I was down. And I would be happy to be able to stand here today and just give you a list of all the, the books that I've read because I love to read and I'd love to, to, to give you that catalog of, of things that I could read and recommend to you, but I found that it was impossible. Uh, I would like to have read, uh, to read to my heart's content, but it just wasn't possible. For the first three weeks, it was very difficult for me to concentrate. I would go in, uh, I needed to do a little bit of exercise, so I would go in and sit at my desk for just a little while, but I could only do that for a few minutes. And I'd want to sort through some things, and then I'd have to find myself right back in the bed, relaxing again and, and dealing, dealing with pain. So during that time, I found that my mind was muddled, and I couldn't think clearly and, and formulate coherent thoughts really to try to put sermons together and do things that I would normally do during the week. But I am like all of you, and that is my mind is not a blank space. Something is going to be there, but I found that my mind was going to places that I didn't want it to go. The devil has a way of working on your mind to make you think 
that things are worse than they are. He has a way of working on you to make you think that things are out of control. That there's nothing to be done. And the devil causes you to worry and brings anxiety into your mind. And so I found myself with far too much time on my hands. And it was during this time that I thought about how many of God's people, many people in our church fill their minds constantly with the troubles of the world. That they spend all their time with depressing news reports. They're concerned about politics and policies and vaccinations and the cultural cesspool in which we live. And their minds are constantly occupied with these things. And it's no wonder that the Christian culture has become a culture of discontent. And sadly, that discontent often gets dragged in to all the conversations that we have when we come to church. And I thought about this and how unprofitable that it is. And then this came to my mind. This passage of scripture. In Philippians chapter 4 verse 8, the apostle said, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. And I, and I see that there is too little thinking on these things, things that are honest, things that are lovely, virtuous, thinking on good reports. In America, we are living in the winter of discontent. Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to combat discontentment. In the 11th verse, he says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I find that to be a very hard verse. I'll tell you in a few minutes what I think it meant to Paul. But first, I want to tell you how it affects me. Contentment is a constant daily struggle. Now, you'll notice the title of my message is Possessed by Possessions. This is actually a three-part message. We are a, a discontented people, and much of our discontentment comes because we think that we need more than we have. We think that we don't get what's due us, and... Many of us let our possessions rule our lives. That's why I like that song that we sang just a few minutes ago. ago, My worth is not in what I own. I'm not criticizing anyone for economic concerns because I do believe it is very difficult for, for us, for any of us to ignore the economy and not to concern ourselves with how good things will be for us in the next few years, especially as many of us are getting older and we start to think, well, what's, what's retirement going to be like? What's, uh, how are we going to make it in these next years? What, what's it going to be like when we reach the end of our lives? We have, we have seen our, our church decline because of what can only be called a mass exodus, and much of that has to do with the economy of our area. It has to do with politics that people don't like. It has to do somewhat with wildfires. And then, of course, uh, some of it, I think, is because we tend to think that the grass is always greener on the other side. And I think that what many of us have done is that we have steered away 
from the type of life that Paul lived and the way that he found his contentment. With the Apostle Paul, it wasn't correcting the world's problems that helped him to find contentment. We notice as we read through Paul's writings that we never find him delivering political speeches. He he didn't push the Roman government towards Christianization or any special worldly favor. I think of what he wrote in 1 Timothy chapter 2 when he asked only one thing about the government, for the government. He said, we just ask that the government leave us alone. Let us live peaceable and quiet lives. Now, we certainly don't find Paul concerned with his personal economy. In verse number 12 of our text, he said he learned to be abased or to live in abasement. Now, let me explain that. I'm not talking about a basement beneath the house, as, as uh, some of our politicians are wont to do. He's not talking about living in a basement. Uh, but to be abased, to live in a basement, is to live in a humble state. It means to live without notoriety, to live with nothing of the riches of this world, and certainly not to be possessed with possessions. One of the remarkable parts of this letter is in the first chapter... Paul wrote the letter from prison, uh, and the place of his imprisonment is, is disputed. Uh, it's most likely that he wrote from, from Rome. But one of his concerns was the negative attitude some of the Philippians had because of an apostle that was in prison. And in their thinking, it was like, if, if such a great servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, is not delivered from prison then what hope is there for me of surviving the Christian life? He advised in chapter 1, verse 12, that there was a reason for him to be in prison. He was in prison for the gospel. He was there because that was God's plan for him. God planned that he would be there. He was in prison because that's the only way that he could reach people in the palace with the gospel of Jesus Christ, people that would never hear otherwise. It didn't matter to Paul where God put him, how Christ was glorified. He just wanted to be a part of it. And so whether it was by his life or his death, that didn't matter because his life was consumed with Christ. It was consumed with God's will. And so in verse 21, he said, It really doesn't matter, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then going on to verse number 29 in that first chapter, he made this remarkable statement. He said, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now the message that needs to come through clearly to us today is that contentment is found in the pleasure of God's will. In other words, wherever God is pleased to put you and to ordain service for you, that's where you find joy, no matter how difficult it is. It's remarkable that Paul wasn't depressed. If I could put it another way, it was in the words of that song. He was satisfied with his life because he was satisfied with Jesus. Life to him was Christ. All he wanted, all he needed was Jesus because Jesus is more than enough to satisfy every avenue of contentment. We don't need anything more than him. 
And that's what contentment is. It's about being satisfied with God and not being ruled by anything that happens around us. Now let, let me take a few minutes to break this passage down and we're going to continue with it next week talking about keeping our possessions from ruling us and that being the basis of our contentment. But I'd like to begin with you today by talking about first here the personal expression of contentment. The personal expression of it. In verse number 10 he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein you were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. I remember once again, it is a letter that was written from prison. And this is a reference to the time that, that Paul was out of contact with the Philippian church. Now you could imagine with poor communications, with, with long distances and on dangerous roads, with people that, that hated his mission, with the uncertain times in which they lived, with the perils of thieves and robbers. They were often uncertain of Paul's location for much of the time they didn't know if Paul was living or if he was dead but then they heard from him they heard from him again and they learned that he was in prison and he was in great need his friends had deserted him he was unable to work he lacked necessities they were unaware but when they received this information they took up a collection and they sent it to Rome by way of Epaphroditus now, this is the reason that Paul writes this last part of the letter and thanks them. He's overjoyed because of their generosity to help him. The Philippian church always supported him. This was a church that loved the apostle. They were always careful to be aware of his needs and to help him in the ministry. Now, Paul then says, well, I, I, I know that when we were out of contact that you had no opportunity to help me. You couldn't because you didn't know where I was. How could you help me? And in the first part of the verse, he says, he's happy that once they found out about him, then they resumed his support. And I want to say this before I, I go on, that giving to missions and supporting ministers of the gospel is a very important part of our worship. This lesson of contentment is a hard one for all of us to learn. And you ought not to think that your pastor, that ministers of the gospel don't struggle with this. You ought not to think that it's easy for us because we're in the word of God every day, we're studying, we're preaching, we do this or that, and we're not struggling with, with all the same issues that you go through. And there are some people who think, well, what we really need to do is to keep the pastor, keep the missionaries hungry, let them prove their humility, let's find out if they really practice what they preach, are they truly content. But keeping God's servants poor to teach them a lesson is not our job. How God deals with them personally is, is not our concern. Ours is to fulfill the responsibility that God gave us to be grateful to those who preach the word of God and give us the truth. Be supportive of those who, who are, are, are helping your, your spiritual welfare. And, and you know as I say this that, that this is a very difficult thing for me to talk about today because it certainly sounds self-serving. I've just come through a period myself when I needed help. I was in a time of need. And what I saw was the church exceed what I thought was possible. And I, and I did 
think of this very verse when I saw what uh, what the church was was doing for me and all the help that I was given, how you were careful for my needs. And that is a great blessing. And I tell you about this, not just for me, but I tell you about it because it's for your good. That God blesses churches that blesses that bless their ministers. And it couldn't be more evident than what the scriptures say about this Philippian church. Do you think it's an accident? Do you think that this is recorded about the Philippian church incidentally? No, this is here because God remembered this church and he included them in his word that we've been reading now for 20 centuries since all this happened. And I'm not sure how history will remember this church, but I can well imagine that your care for me over these many years that I've been your pastor will be memorialized before God in heaven and you'll be reaping the benefits of it, of the eternal rewards throughout, e- throughout all of eternity. But the other side of this equation is that Paul was satisfied no matter if they gave or if they didn't give. The giving blessed them, but whether he received any benefit from it was not the source of his contentment. His contentment was in God. He knew something about his God. Your your bulletin article today reflects some of this, that God can use evil. He can take things that others meant for harm, and he can use them for your good. When Joseph was sold in Egypt... It's hard to imagine the actions of his brothers would turn out any other way but a total catastrophe. But we read that story and we find Joseph 20 years later telling his brothers, your evil God meant for my good. He meant for your good because he saved you alive and he had intentions of building a nation out of you. That would become the nation of Israel and it happened because of that evil thing that happened to Joseph at the beginning. Now, what does that tell us about God? I think it tells us this first, that we are to respect God's providence. Respect God's providence. Understand that God has a huge job of working out all circumstances for all believers across this entire globe. I think we fail to to appreciate the extreme profundity of Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Things that you never imagined are good, are good, because the end of them is the accomplishment of God's will for your life. Paul wrote Romans 8.28 with the intention that it would be read by persecuted Christians who had great difficulty understanding why are we going through this. Why is there so much trouble? And we find that Romans 8.28 is often cut off from verses 29 and 30, which are the explanation of why Romans 8.28 is true. And it's also cut off from the promises of the rest of the chapter where it tells us there that God never, God never deserts His people. So what is God's providence? You know, I like two definitions that are given by a dictionary that makes no claims to be a theological dictionary. Two definitions this dictionary gave of God's providence. Number one is a manifestation of God's foresightful care for his creatures. A manifestation of God's foresightful care for his creatures. And then the second definition, the prudence and care 
exercised by someone in management of resources. Now let me talk to you about that first one. God's foresightful care. Think a minute about foresight. How long before an event does God have foresight? Well, we'd be foolish to think that anything that God knows, he didn't always know. In Acts 15.8, James said, 15.18 rather, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And so this must mean that God's providence in the care of his children is planned and unalterable. The events of their lives can't be known without knowing the people. So God's foresight also includes his foreknowledge, a foreknowledge that is as certain as all the works that he performs because they're all, all of this is determined before the world began. Nothing comes as a surprise to God. There are no unplanned contingencies. And I'm sure the author of the dictionary did not contemplate the biblical definition of foresight that we would find in the King James Version or, or would equate that with God's foreknowledge. But I want to show you something in 1 Peter chapter 1, if you turn there for just a minute. I want to look, uh, look here where we get an idea, some understanding of what God's foresight and God's foreknowledge, His providential foresight and foreknowledge, what is that? 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 Peter wrote, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Notice the word foreknowledge there. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and to obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Now, if you just slide on down the passage to verse number 18, it says, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse number 20, Who verily, speaking of Christ, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Foreordained, in verse 20, is the verb form of the same word as foreknowledge in verse number 2. That's the noun. Christ was foreordained by God to be sacrificed for our sins, meaning that what happened to Christ on the cross was predetermined. Now that same word is used in verse number 2 when it says elect, according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, this would tell us that it can't mean that God looked down through time to see if we would believe and see what we would do, or he chose us or decided anything about us on that basis. It means that God predetermined the choice. In other words, we believe, we believe because God predetermined that belief. How does that relate to providence then? Well, God's foresightful care of his people is that God predetermined the choices for his people, what happens to his people. God knows his people. He's always known them. He knows about their salvation and as much in his providence as everything that happens to them after they're saved. He knows their entire lives. 
Now, if you know then that your salvation is in God's providence, then you understand as you go on reading in 1 Peter, you'll come to chapter 3 and you'll see what your life is after salvation. And you'll see that it's not an easy life. God guards your life as He also guards your soul. 1 Peter 3, 12 through 14 says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is He that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if, ye suffer for righteousness' sake. What? Happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. How can he write that? Happy are ye, though you suffer and though you are persecuted. How is that possible? It's possible because of God's providence. It's all bad news, all this bad news about the economy and about politics, about the oppression of personal freedoms, forced vaccinations, whatever you want to, to stick in there. Is that depressing to you? Does that rule your contentment? Well, just think for a minute. What if God is the one who sent that evil oppression your way? Why? Hasn't he declared in his divine providence that things don't work for your good? Because they will, because he controls it all. This that you see, everything that you experience, no matter how bad that you think it is, that is all within God's providence. And when you understand God's providence in this way, how could you be discontent? Abraham said, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? I mean, do you think that God missed something? Do you think he doesn't know about this? Do you think he didn't see all of this coming? Of course he did. Now, the second definition is about the prudent care of the management of resources. If God is providential, it means that he exercises prudent care in the management of all of his resources. So God's resources are never wasted. And that's another way of saying the same thing that Abraham said, God will do rightly with everything he has. Or another way, God will always do right by you. I found something interesting as I was reading One author was talking about the difference between a miracle and God's providence. And this author said, well, a miracle is when God just out of the blue changes everything. And he says, this needs to happen. And God just does something that's a totally unnatural thing, something that's unexpected. It's something out of the realm of what we know, whether that's spiritual or physical. But then he says providence is different. Providence is ordered. It follows God's pattern. Things come to pass methodically. For example, we we don't think of rain as being supernatural. We need rain. God sends rain in his providence. He has weather cycles that are explainable. Now the question is, which is more difficult? A miracle or providence? Well, in God's providence, he knows all the contingencies that go off in a million different directions for his people that are in a zillion different places. And he has to take everything that happens to them into consideration and cause them to interact in such a way that he gets the exact outcome that he predetermines. There are countless things 
that happen just to get you into that seat on this Sunday morning. You ever thought what life would be like if one detail worked out differently? You know, I enjoy science fiction. I like uh, movies about time travel. And in these movies, they always deal with the same logistical and philosophical problems. What if someone travels to the past and changes something in the past? What are the multitudinous repercussions of a change in the past? What does that do to the future? If I hadn't married my wife, what happens to our children and our grandchildren? If I change something in the past, what happens to all those events that have already happened to them? And the ones that will happen and go on to the end of time. And I'm thinking about just one family. Uh, in effect, all the events of the world started with one family. Every action and every interaction that came from that one family at the beginning was set in order by God and he had to control all of the littlest details to the nth degree that we are right here where we are today. And so you would ask then, which is harder, a sudden miracle or God's providence? How does God work all of these things out for you to be here in 2021? You see what I'm getting at? If in God's providence he controls everything and all belongs to him and he has every detail in his mind, then you should be thinking, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What do I have to complain about? What do I have to be anxious about? What do I have to worry about when every Detail is in God's hands. So which is harder for God, a miracle or providence? And the truth is, there's nothing that's hard for God. Now, this is first then, respect God's providence. Contentment comes from realizing and accepting who is in control. Paul knew, and that's the reason that he had this grand theology of the sovereign God. Doesn't it make sense that Paul would write so much about all these things that preachers like to argue about? In his mind, he's thinking, what is there to argue about? What is there to argue about? If you understand God's providence, you will never have a problem with God's predestination. He's the one that does all things well. Whatever's left to you gets messed up. Now, secondly... What we do is to accept the paltry. How did Paul live in a prison cell without complaining? How did he exist without enough food? How, how, did he, how did he stay in the coldest of a dank cell? How is it that he doesn't end up in despair because his friends deserted him? And the answer just keeps flowing back to us because he was satisfied with Jesus. Because Jesus was simply enough. Happiness to him was not being able to take a vacation every day. But did you know that this is the overarching problem of both liberal and fundamental theology today? Liberalism says, do whatever you want to do. Do whatever makes you happy. There are no absolutes. It's all about you. Live the lifestyle that you want because the goal is the pursuit of your happiness at any cost. Now we call that liberalism, that kind of liberalism, humanism. Now, the interesting thing about much of fundamentalism is that it's also humanistic. 
you think of the way that the gospel is presented. If you listen to most gospel presentations, this is what you'll hear. God loves you. God has a wonderful plan for your life. I promise that if you trust Jesus, you will find happiness that you've never found before. And the best part of it is you get to go to heaven when you die. You do want to go to heaven, don't you? You do want to be happy, don't you? And so what's the theme? Personal happiness. Personal happiness is the theme. The theological liberal and the fundamental conservative finds himself consumed in the same thing. Personal happiness. Most Christian people believe that the goal of their salvation is to go to heaven and to be happy. Now you already know what I'm going to say next. The goal of salvation is not heaven. And it's not about your happiness. The goal of salvation is the glory of God. God saves you because he deserves to be glorified. If you're lost, you won't purposely glorify God. God did not save you because he wants you to be happy. And I'm not saying you won't be. I'm saying that's not the purpose of saving you. The purpose of saving you is to glorify him. He made all of the creation to his glory. Happiness will be something that is incidental to his glory. If you understand that, then you can accept living in any part of town. If you understand that, you can drive a clunker. You can wear shoes with holes in them. You can eat SpaghettiOs instead of steak. You can do that because contentment is not about being self-satisfied. Now here's the key to this section of the fourth chapter of Philippians. It's the meaning of contentment. What does that word mean? The word does not mean that I'm happy because I'm snug as a bug in the rug. I'm happy because I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I'm just so content. Now, in Paul's language, contentment is not about being self-satisfied. He means self-sufficiency. Now, hear me out before you go ballistic on that. Not self-sufficiency like I depend on me and not God or anybody else. It means that I don't need anything other than what God provides. That this container, which is my body and my soul, which God purchased with his own blood, that is his purchased possession, that God takes that container and he puts everything into it that he determines necessary to make me content. So I'm not going to be happy depending on whether I can add this or this or this to my life. Or I will be happy if I take away this certain thing from my life. It's not that I'll be happy if the political climate changes. It's not that I'll be happy if the weather is a lot nicer. I'll be happy if I can stop wearing this stupid mask. No, it's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of, of Christianity today that gets preached on just about every channel on TV. They're saying that God wants you to succeed. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have your wildest dreams. You are living in defeat if you don't have financial success. But God says you have success if you have me. Victory is yours if you have me. So what we find Paul saying here is that I am satisfied with Jesus and whether you give me $10,000 or you give me a kick in the teeth, I'm not dependent on anything for happiness and contentment but Jesus Christ.
Now, the difficulty of this fourth chapter is that it was hard for Paul to say that in this way. He didn't want to say, I was just about at the end of my rope. I didn't know what I was going to do. Everything was going to fail. If you did not send me that offering, I don't know what would happen. Oh, they might have liked to hear that. They might have liked to hear Paul stroke their ego. And then they would say, look what we did for Paul. We're just fine Christians. And if Paul left them with that attitude, it would be self-defeating. That would make their happiness dependent on the praise that they received from him. And I don't know if you get this. It's a tangled web that we're trying to unravel with that phrase, I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. And he says, I don't speak in respect of want. I'm not telling you this because I am destitute. I have everything that I need in Christ, whether you help me or not. But I would like you to know I appreciate the gift. And you know the thing about this? If we preach this the way that Paul taught it, if you took this same lesson into a, a charismatic, megachurch, prosperity gospel, megachurch, and you taught it like this, they wouldn't have 25 people to fill up the front row next week. And the reason they wouldn't is because they are not after God's glory. They're after personal success. They're after the financial success. God wants you to have money. Nobody cares about the glory of God. Well, let let me finish this part by going back to something I said earlier. Secondly, here we have the paradox of contentment. This first comment that I want to make is not a point on your listening sheet, but I suppose there is one paradox that people would see in this. They would say, well, if we are to be content in whatever state that we're in, do we just sit here then without a job? Do we not have a house? Do we go without food? Is it que Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be? No, we're not talking fatalism here. Some people don't get the difference between God's sovereign plan and fatalism. Fatalism is random and chaotic. It assumes there's no one in control. Things just work out the way that they work out. You don't know how many times that I've heard preachers in their sanctified wisdom say that believing in election and predestination is fatalism. What school did they go to? This is not fatalism. It's not random chance happenings. It's exactly the opposite. If you've been listening to what I said today, we're talking about a controlled universe by the one who created it all. There is nothing that's left to chance. This is providence, not chance. Fatalism says things like this. Christ died to give people a chance to be saved. That's real fatalism. Nobody's in control. And if there is somebody in control, it's you. And how great is that to know that you're in control when you couldn't even tie your shoes if God didn't give you coordination? This is not fatalism. Well, I don't have a job, but that's okay. If it's meant to be, it's meant to be. This is not about whether you can help yourself or better yourself. It's not about whether you can try to get a better job, to buy a better house, to do any of those things. You do those things honestly, there's not a problem with that. The point here is not to be controlled by these things so that your life only matters if you have all these things. If God determines that you don't have any of it, if you lack all of it, 
You don't let that govern your attitude. You don't become depressed. You don't go about with a long face and say, woe is me, and have that written all over you. Let me give you the two paradoxes. I want to show you in the end of the message. The first one is the problem of being poor. The problem of Christians being poor. Look at verse number 12. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. I know how to be poor, know how to have plenty of goods. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Poverty is not just about material possessions. What if you're treated poorly? That's the lot of Christians too, isn't it? To be treated poorly? What about being a Christian and... You know up front what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.13. Just listen to a part of that verse. Speaking of Christians and Paul personally and what he went through. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I have never heard a prosperity preacher read that verse. In fact, they teach that people will honor you if you're a Christian. Oh, people, they know whose child you are. They know who your father is, so they will honor you. The Apostle Paul didn't need the world to honor him. He wasn't concerned about heathens respecting him and showing him favor. And so if you are treated badly, if there is ridicule, if you go to work every day with that, can you do it? Can you smile through it with contentment? Can you, can you maintain a sweet spirit in the face of that bitterness? A real contentment like Paul is speaking of means that the externals make no change in you. The externals make no change. Your satisfaction doesn't come from what is without. It comes from Jesus Christ. So you think, well, isn't this quite paradoxical to say I am content to be poor materially and to be treated poorly? Contentment and being poor, that doesn't work well together. Not in the same context. And so being poor with a misunderstanding of God's providence is a real problem. How can you have Christians that are poor that are content? Now, the next, though, is probably more often a problem, and that is the paradox of being prosperous. This is the cure as most people see it. This is the prosperity gospel principle. I will become prosperous and then I will be content. And the problem with this is that it only masquerades as the gospel of contentment. It's the false gospel of discontentment. And that is your discontent feeds your desire to be content. And that's what you call a real paradox. Now, for the rest of us that have been mesmerized by false promises, there is a paradox as well is, 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 when, you, when you have everything that you want and not just what you need. What if you abound rather than being abased? And here's what we find out is that it is harder to be content and to be satisfied with Jesus when we are pampered rather than when we are poor. You check out the article that I wrote again. If there were no evil, would we desire God? What do you do when you're poor? 
What do you do when people are, are, treat you badly? What do you do? Well, you get down on your knees. Get on your knees and you ask God for help. Get on your knees, you ask God to give you the right spirit. You ask God to take care of you. You plead with Him to supply your daily bread. You just genuinely depend on God. But what happens when most people are prosperous? Do you feel the same desire to pray? Do you feel the same urgency about prayer? I've got to do this or else? See, it becomes harder to be satisfied with Jesus when you're filled with all your wants rather than just having your needs supplied. We're fooled in this country. I think it was MacArthur who said something like this. He said, in America, we don't have any wants. We only have needs. That sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? That doesn't sound right. We have no wants. We only have needs. Well, as it turns out, I think that's probably correct. Because we all say, you know... I need an iPhone 12 Max. (laughs) And I need a 75-inch Ultra something or other TV. And I need, I, I, I need a timeshare in Fiji. Do you still need God when you have all of that? You still look to God? The paradox is that prosperity does not really often bring the contentment of Paul's type. And this is why we find Jesus saying, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And that's because the priorities are switched, they're mixed up, and we are, we are possessed with our possessions rather than being possessed by Jesus Christ. Paul was satisfied with Jesus. Nothing good or bad was going to substitute for Christ. So this is the problem that Paul faced in this portion of Scripture. How can you show gratitude for a gift, which he wanted to do, and at the same time tell the giver, I don't depend on your gifts? Well, he needs to encourage them to keep on giving because that's the right thing to do. And at the same time, he wants to teach them that if the recipient of the gift has God, God is really all that he needs. So being content is not as easy as we might think. Not as easy as we might think. We are conditioned by our old nature to satisfy self rather than glorify God. But what if we could just finally come to the place that our contentment is that we are fulfilling God's purpose for our lives. That's all that it takes for me to be content. Am I doing what God wants me to be or do? Am I where God wants me to be? And whether that's poverty or prosperity, all things work for my good because God planned it that way before I was born. Well, this is what the devil does with the mind then. He plays tricks. And in my case... Having too much empty space up here without the right things to think about, that empty space will not stay an empty space. It never does. It starts to fill up. And if we're not careful, it fills up with all the wrong things. Satan is able to put every conceivable cause of discontentment in your mind. He diverts your eyes from Jesus Christ and the perfect plan that he has for his people. 
So what do you put in the empty space? Verse number 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. Let that rule what you listen to. Let that rule what you're thinking about every day. You can't think on these things and have any room left for all of Satan's depressing mind games. Let's pray. Father, we come to you thanking you for the word that the Apostle Paul gives us here about how we can put all of this trouble of the world behind us, how we can get it away from us and not let us control who we are and what we think and what we do. We need to become satisfied with Jesus and only Him. If we just come to the place that we realize that what happens in our lives is, is the ultimate outworking of your sovereign will. And though we can't see in the exact moment how those things are going to work for our good, we know that you've got a plan and purpose somewhere down the line. Things in themselves may not be good, but the purpose that you have for them always will be because you promised that it would. Lord, help us to put all of our help, all of our hope and our confidence in you. Again, Lord, we thank you for our people and, and just the way that they have shown that our church is much like that Philippian church, caring for the needs of someone, helping someone, helping me. And I thank you, Lord, for that. Bless our people. Help us to look more and more to you every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.bebaptist.org.